You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Hey everybody, welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, appreciate you guys being part of the show and taking time out to listen. Little homework for you guys before we get started. Please go on iTunes and subscribe. Leave us a rating and a review as well. It does not take long. It doesn't have to be a long review, but make sure you subscribe. Leave that rating and review. That's going to help us out so much. Could get the word of the podcast out there. Let everybody know what we're doing and continue to tell these great stories that you guys tune in for each and every week. So if you could do that, we sincerely appreciate it. Also follow us on all our social media sites on Facebook at Hazard Ground Podcast, on Instagram, the same, at Hazard Ground Podcast, and on Twitter, at Hazard Ground. Give us a follow there as well. This week's guest is a former infantryman, retired captain, also former ranger, with two tours in Iraq and over 400 combat missions that he led both as a platoon leader and a company commander. Furthermore, he is a Tillman scholar, and it is Dan Futrell joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Dan, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Appreciate being here. All right, so your story begins uh, in the military. How, why, where, when did you get in? Why'd you do it? <laughs> yeah, no problem. Uh, so, you know, I, uh, I went to college uh, at Gonzaga University in Spokane, Washington. And, uh, you know, when I got there, I, I grew up with a single dad and uh, didn't have a, a way to pay for school. And, you know, when I sat down in the financial aid office uh, after getting there as an 18-year-old, they said, so how are you going to pay for this? And uh, I didn't have a, a good answer to that. Um, and she, she told me, uh, well, you should think about ROTC or, or taking out a bunch of loans. And, you know, I, this, was, uh, this was August of 2001. Uh, the ROTC department invited me to uh, start attending all of their classes and, and PT. Uh, September 11 happened. And uh, at the end of that semester, uh, they offered me a scholarship and, and I, I signed up immediately. So wait a second. You started ROTC in August of two thousand one, and nine yeah. eleven happens. Were you like, uh, no thanks, peace, see ya? <laughs> you know, I, I went back and uh, you know, of course, looking back at history, I, I looked at uh, the first documents that I could get my hands on, and September fourth was the uh, was was the day I drew drew my supply out of our supply room. Uh, September or uh, yeah, September fourth, two thousand one. Uh, you know, for me, uh, it, it was. I mean, you remember that time. Nobody thought that we'd still be talking about Afghanistan 15 years later. Uh, so, you know, there was a lot unexpected at that time, but I was I was willing to raise my hand and, and, and jump into it. It's crazy. I mean, it, it, we've talked to so many people on this podcast. Like, a lot of people signed up after 9-11, and generally we just ask, you know, hey, what was the reason? It was patriotism. Hey, I wanted to do my part, wanted to serve. And then there are people who are already in prior to 9-11. You ask them where they were and, you know, what they were doing and their reaction. And then there's the people like us that kind of had the option to choose a different career right when 9-11 happened. Like, you could have really put a stop to say, no, you know what? I'll take out a loan. Like, I'll just go do something different. I don't want to go to war. And I think that's some of the toughest decisions that young people ever had to make. And I really commend people for doing it. Well, I appreciate that. You know, for me... Uh, you know, a lot of people have asked me, why did you, why did you join the military? And, you know, I, I, I've got this little story about, you know, financial aid and, and such. And that's what that's what got me uh, got me into the door. But I tell you what, you know, the uh, the first semester where they said, you know, come and come attend all of our training. Uh, I met just the best people that I had ever met. And uh, when it when it came time to, to sign on the dotted line and, and commit myself, 
uh, I felt good doing it because, uh, you know, the, the question I was trying to answer for myself was, do I want to work with these people? Uh, and, and is this interesting work? Uh, is it, you know, will it lead, lead to a life of adventure? And, and on all counts, uh, it was. They're great people, and, and they really sold it for me. Okay, so you finish your college experience, you get commissioned as a second lieutenant, and what's up next for you? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I, I got commissioned, went down to Fort Benning, Georgia, uh, home of the infantry and uh, did four uh, four months of the infantry officer basic course. Did you choose uh, to be an infantry officer, Dan? I mean, was that what you chose in Because in ROTC, for those who don't know, you kind of get a chance to pick what you want to do in the army. You like you have you have what's called an OML, an order of merit list, and you kind of have a chance to say, "Hey, I want to be an armor officer. I want to be an infantry guy. I want to be a, a military intelligence guy." Did you pick infantry? I did. Yeah, I wanted to be an infantryman. You know, at, at the time, and you know, uh, that decision was made. A couple years after, you know, September 11th. So that would have been, you know, maybe 2004. And, you know, we were, you know, uh, shortly into Iraq at the time. We're well into Afghanistan. And for me, you know, if I'm going to join the Army, uh, I'd love to be where the rubber hits the, mo- hits the road. Uh, you know, when, when there, there's, there's a certain amount of pride, uh, <laughs> right or wrong, but there's a certain amount of pride to uh, being the guy who carries the heaviest rucksack, right? And, you know, it, the thing they always say about the infantry is everybody else in the Army supports the infantry. And, uh, you know, I, 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 to this day, I tell you that that's true. <laughs> but, uh, um, yeah, I wanted, to, I wanted to do the hard thing that I thought that I'd be proud of later. Okay, so you head off to Fort Benning, Georgia, uh, and you go into Ranger School immediately after that. Was that already predetermined, or you had to work your way to that? Uh, yeah, I, uh, I, when you go through IOBC, you, you know, you're either in the first class right afterwards or the second class. And I just happened to be in the first class. Uh, so started Ranger school, October of 2005, uh, finished. I, I, I did, uh, I loved it so much. I did, uh, the, the first phase twice. <laughs> <laughs> now, was that, a, was that because of injury or because of what? No, that's cause I just, uh, I was a numbskull and didn't learn enough, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I died, messed up on my patrols and, and didn't do the right thing. Uh, I didn't, didn't show enough leadership, so they made me do it again. Fortunately, uh, I didn't mess up so bad that they just kicked me out. So, Looking back on Ranger School, was that one of the toughest experiences of your military career? You know, it was tough. You know, I, I just like uh, just like any of these experiences, and, and you've been there. Um, there's there's a level of BS to everything. Uh, there's there's no shortage uh, of BS in Ranger School, but uh, it was also hard. You know, um, the, the the it's physically straining, low food, you know, low uh, low sleep, um, and trying to work through you know interpersonal leadership challenges. Uh, it, it was hard. But, um, you know, I was, I was thankful to get through it, a little bit skinnier and a little bit weaker, but uh, I was <laughs> thankful to get through it for sure. So you get your Ranger tab off to your first duty assignment. How quickly do you get to your first deployment? Well, yeah, so I, I you know, when I finished Ranger school, I already knew uh, what unit I was going to. First of the 23rd Infantry in Fort Lewis, Washington, uh, 3-2 Striker Brigade. And, so right in your backyard, uh, essentially. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I knew they were going to the National Training Center, NTC, uh, shortly after I finished Ranger School. So I, I drove in three days' time from Fort Benning, Georgia, to Fort Lewis uh, to try to ensure that I was there by the time the unit left for uh, NTC. Uh, I got there, and as a, as a young second lieutenant, I didn't realize uh, how much time it takes to in-process at a post. <laughs> so, uh, you know, just the silly administrative stuff. So I got there, uh, missed the initial uh, departure for NTC, but then joined midstream. 
and then when and then came back uh, after NTC and had about three months before deploying to Iraq. And that that three months was, um, you know, we'd already packed up our strikers and it was going to the range, doing some shootout stuff, uh, and packing up a bunch of Connexes before taking off in uh, June of 2006. Did you have a platoon at that point in time? I did. Yeah, I uh, got to the got to the battalion. And, uh, you know, one of the last platoon leaders to rotate out before the deployment, uh, I ended up getting that platoon. It was the fourth platoon in an infantry company. So, you know, we had uh, an infantry squad. We had a squad of mortarmen. And then we had the, uh, you know, and when we started off, we had the snipers. We had the uh, uh, field artillerymen. And just kind of a mishmash of folks uh, made into a fourth platoon that ended up uh, being battle space owners. 2005, you head to Iraq. What were you told? What was your mission? What were your expectations? Yeah, to, uh, 2006. 2006, 2006, sorry. Yeah, it, uh, you know, when we first were going to go, we were going to go to Beji, uh, to the oil refinery. And, you know, we were told that, uh, you know, some, some bad guys are stealing oil and making money. And we were going to prevent that from happening. And when we, when we got to Kuwait, uh, we stayed at Camp Buring for a while. And we were there for a couple of weeks and our mission changed and uh, things were getting a little bit hotter, uh, both both on the uh, on the Mercury and just, uh, you know, in the significant actions uh, getting hotter in Baghdad. And so they diverted us after we arrived in, in Kuwait and said, you guys are going to own the north uh, northwest corner of Baghdad. And so. You know, we left the States thinking we we're going to do one thing, got to Kuwait, switched gears, went to Baghdad, and now we're going to be uh, you know, battle space owners. And you know, I'll tell you a story of, the, of my first mission. It may give you a laugh. Uh, you know, we, we kind of oriented ourselves uh, to the to the area. And the first day that our battalion goes out of the wire, uh, one of the platoons wanders way out of sector on the northwest side of Baghdad, ends up rolling a vehicle. Uh, some folks got hurt. Fortunately, nothing worse than that. Um, and we had to, and there was another shooting incident where they said, all right, for a whole day, we're going to, we're going to pause the battalion. Everybody's going to come in we're going to do some more training. And then they sent everybody back out and I go back out and this, you know, this is now day three and my vehicle had not arrived yet. And so my boss uh, gives me his vehicle and an ICV an infantry carrier vehicle. And so I got my boss's vehicle. I've got a two two other vehicles with me, and this is you know, this is the first time I've I've been in a striker commanding a platoon, and uh, you know I'm told you know here's your area of Gazalia you guys are going to, and so I'm I want to be smart, and I you know I look at this road that had received a lot of uh, IEDs previously, and I said well you know the enemy is clearly over there, so you know I'm I'm not going to travel on that road to to get to them. And so I picked this dirt road on the west side of Baghdad, and I start driving up. And on one side of the road is a uh, is a canal. Uh, you know, we used to call it Shit Creek. But uh, <laughs> the the we swerved to go around a telephone pole, and the right four wheels of our striker slip into the canal and tip our striker onto its side. And so we all get out of the vehicle. Nobody wants to get hurt. Fortunately, it didn't flip all the way. And then we spend the next you know, three or four hours out there trying to recover this striker, which is my boss's striker. And, you know, in ranger school and in, in all the training before that, you know, anytime you were in a patrol base or you were set up, you know, the leader of the group would be running from position to position, checking on people. And so I'm in Baghdad and I'm running from position to position. Like, okay, you got everything you need. What do you see? You know, of course we're not doing sector diagrams here, but uh, you know, I'm making sure my guys have what they need and, and checking on them. And finally, somebody tells me, they're like, hey, sir, 
If you keep running around like that in 130 degree, 130 degree heat, you're going to pass out and we're going to have to carry your ass home. Stop running everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) And and it's so funny because, uh, you know, I just, uh, you know, that's what, that's how we had trained, but it was not at all realistic. Uh, but it was good, good lesson learned. Uh, vehicle was was saved and uh, we ended up doing a couple repairs as well did you ever as a what you had to be 24 25 years old at that point in time essentially uh, still well, 23. 23 23 okay yeah. even, even that's yeah. my point so you're essentially you're still a kid and you're yeah. running around in baghdad in charge of all these other young men uh, trying to stay alive and keep them alive did that ever sink into your head at that moment in time going god like this is like unreal what what, what, what i'm dealing with right now yeah, sure. I mean, uh, you know, all of it is unreal. Uh, you know, one of the one of the good things about the military is uh, they end up testing out young men and women, giving them res- much more responsibility than you, you, you might think they uh, they're capable for. And the beautiful thing about the military is a lot of people are able able to rise to it and really you know show show some strength and some colors uh, that otherwise you know in the private sector they might not you know get that kind of opportunity for ten years. So, you know, I, I felt that for sure. Uh, there, you, you simultaneously think to yourself, ah, I'm not sure that I'm ready for this. And you say, well, you know, I've been training for this for the last three, four or five years. So, you know, it's game time. Get it right. And there's a lot of things you just learn along the way. You know, when I when I when I started out, I uh, uh, I, I imagined that I knew all the answers and uh, was uh, uh, wasn't as collaborative with my NCOs as, as I ought to have been. Uh, and, you know, I continued down that path for a while until I, I got corrected by my team. And they said, hey, you know, you need to start talking to us when you're doing your mission planning. <laughs> we're, we're part of this team. And, uh, and that's the kind of thing, you know, I, I should have known that earlier, but I was very thankful to have good NCOs to teach me that kind of stuff. What was your first experience in combat like for you? You know, uh, not... Uh, uh, not as dramatic as, as maybe you might think, you know, and, 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 you know, how you define combat is, is, uh, is there are a lot of ways to define it. Right. So, you know, first time in a combat environment, well, sure. Yeah. Driving around on a road and, you know, kind of uneventful first time getting shot at, you know, was on a big dirt soccer field where, you know, it was very difficult to determine where the, where the shot came from and you're kind of trying to react to it, but, you know, it's kind of a lack of clarity. Um, first time, you know, in an actual engagement where, where you know, you, you know what you're doing, you know, that, that gets your heart rate up a little bit higher and, and, and keeps it there. So, yeah, I mean, all of this is, um, uh, you know, it was interesting to see over the course of the deployment how some of these things that in the beginning of the deployment get your, your heart rate elevated, you know, always always does that. But certainly later on, uh, you're you're able to just think clearly through the situation and say, okay, you know, here's, here's what I see. Here's the situation. Here's what I got to do. And here's the assets I've got at my side. Uh, and I tell you what, uh, you don't, you don't want to be fighting against the striker platoon. Those things are great. How hard was it for you in that first moment to not like double clutch? We talk a lot on the podcast about that decision. The first time you, you, you fire around at the enemy because uh, everything's different from there on out. Like your entire scope of the world just changes once you pull that trigger for the first time. Uh, as a young man, was that difficult for you? Yeah, you know, um, there's there's a uh, it's, it's so interesting when when you're with a group of guys who know what they're doing that thing things like that kind of moment uh, they don't they don't. You know, sometimes they can and sometimes they don't register as uh, kind of this emotional high or low or, or whatever. Um, I, so I, I would say that, you know, that that moment was not as um, 
you know, it was not as, as distinct. Uh, you know, the, the, the environment that we were working in was one where, you know, our mission was not clearly defined, but essentially it was prevent the Sunnis and the Shias from killing each other. Uh, and, and in the process, you know, keep yourself safe uh, and, and support the Iraqi security forces. And so, you know, when somebody starts shooting at you, you know, on, on some, some days it's kind of a relief because then you know what you're dealing with. You know, you know where the enemy is, you know how to respond. Uh, on other days where you just get a pot shot or two or, you know, you're, you're avoiding IEDs, those are the days that are more frustrating than actual, an actual firefight because, you know, it's, it's like you're fighting an enemy that you can't see and you're, you're, you're playing a chess game. So, you know, in some instances, you know, somebody actually shooting at you is a little bit of a relief. No, I can understand that. Um, and a lot of times training kicks in. A lot of times you don't have to think. But there are moments where, uh, at least from personal experience I know, there are moments where you pause for a split second and you, you just try to evaluate the, the situation in, in a moment. And it's a very small moment, but there's a lot of thinking that goes on. And it's different for everybody in, in, on how they react to it. What was it like for you on that first deployment um, when you know somebody was hurt or killed in combat? Yeah, uh, you know, we had, um, you know, those are, those are, those are, those are difficult moments. You know, we, you know, I think we're, humans are just, are, are built not to, uh, not to enjoy seeing death. And, you know, we, we saw death a lot, um, you know, sometimes at the hands of Iraqis killing other Iraqis. And, uh, and that's just, it's not pleasant. We're, we're, you know, we're built to want to reject that. You know, and, and then when, when you see somebody who's injured or, or, or killed because of uh, something you or your team did, you know, that's 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 also not pleasant because, it you know, it causes you to start, you know, second guessing things and saying, well, you know, did it have to go down like that? Um, you know, is there is there was there a turning point where, you know, you could have made a different decision and somebody doesn't end up dead? And, and then, you know, of course, seeing your own, you know, you know, we had one instance where uh, a guy on my team was was shot. Um, you know, we had another instance where, uh, you know, an, an IED, you know, really rung the bell of a couple of our guys, uh, to the extent that, you know, they, they still feel some of that today. And, um, and, and, you know, my, uh, my platoon did lose a couple of guys while we were there and that, that, those, those moments are, um, uh, those moments are, are intensely personal, um, because it's, it's like somebody really struck out at you, struck out at your team. And, um, you know that's that's uh, yeah I don't know what else to say about that those are those are those are tough moments um, you know that you know there's there's a reaction um, I remember somebody telling us I think it was the chaplain told us this uh, after a particular incident he said you know a lot of you are going to feel anger right now uh, and that's actually an okay thing to feel while you're deployed because uh, it it uh, it energizes you you know anger although negative. Um, it, it can be a motivator for you to be sharp and, and, and continue to act while the, the opposite, you know, reaction of depression actually kind of takes away your energy and, and shuts you down. And so, you know, this, this, this idea of, of, of mourning and, and letting yourself feel that, um, that sadness while you're deployed is actually not helpful. And so a lot of guys, you know, kind of push that off and, and certainly guys on my team, myself included, did some of that. Yeah, I, I think it's natural. Uh, I mean, 
everybody deals with this thing different. That's one thing in doing this podcast we've learned. And some guys are willing to express it right at that moment. Some guys talk about crying in the moment and letting it all out right then and there and then turning the page. Other guys quickly suppress it and turn the page. Uh, and, and then it comes back up when they get back home or at a later date. I mean, it's just it, 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 there's no right answer. I think it's different for everybody. And the challenge yeah. is, is we all understand that, yes, that's a sad moment. And our teammate, our brother is gone. But guess what happens like an hour later? The mission continues. Like we don't have a choice. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And, and that, yeah, I mean, that, that happened uh, <laughs> almost like that for us. We, we you know, lost a guy uh, named Catalan to an IED. And, you know, a couple hours later, we were back out in sector, you know, because that's where, that's where we were needed to be. So how does that first deployment end for you? How do you get out of there? You know, uh, we started out, it was supposed to be a 12 month trip. And then, uh, you know, they, they extended us. So we ended up taking 15. Uh, we came home right around September 11, 2007. And, uh, actually I think we, we, we came home on that day and, uh, you know, you, you come back and there's a whole variety of new things to worry about. Um, you know, personal relationships, you want to make sure stay strong or, or get stronger, uh, or at least don't get weaker. Uh, you start thinking about, you know, if you're, if you're a platoon leader, you don't stay a platoon leader forever. What's next? Where are you going? What are you going to do? And, uh, and that's on top of just taking care of yourself. Um, so, you know, I, I got home and, uh, I was, I was moved over to another company in the battalion, uh, eventually was, uh, asked to, to, uh, be the company commander for that company. And, um, and I, I did that and really poured myself into that, uh, you know, probably at the, uh, uh, at the expense of other parts of my, my life. Um, but you know, I, I, I very much shifted my energy into maintaining busy and, and, um, you know, not really having to process, uh, you know, 15 months worth of a deployment. How quickly do you find out that you're heading back? Uh, so, you know, at the time, uh, I did, I did one deployment and, uh, I could have gone to the career course, uh, and then deployed somewhere else uh, or been stationed somewhere else and then deployed again. Um, I, I, at the end of my company command time and it was, uh, I was kind of a fill in as a company commander. Um, and so I had not yet been in the career course. And so at the end of that, uh, I let my boss know that I wasn't going to stay in the, in the, in the army. Uh, but that I wanted to deploy one more time. And, and uh, you know, all, all of the friends that I had grown up with uh, were deploying more than once. And I, I didn't want to be the guy that had had just one trip uh, on his on his uh, on his time in the military. So I told my boss, hey, you know, I'm willing to deploy again in any, any capacity that you need, any capacity that the battalion or the brigade needs. Uh, but, you know, I, I've, I've been with this company. I've been with this battalion. I'd really love to go again. And, and he came back and he said, okay, let me, let me think about that a little bit. And the next day he said, you know, uh, one of the, one of the generals at the core headquarters at Fort Lewis is looking for an aide. Do you want to volunteer for this position? You want to interview, uh, thought about it, interviewed. And so, you know, when I, I finished my company command time in December of 08 and got the job as the aide and deployed in March of, of 09. So it was a it was a quick turnaround in terms of deploying. If I had stayed with the uh, with the brigade, I would have had about another year. Um, let let me ahead. ask you something real quick, just because uh, you seemed very certain that your military career was over after your first deployment. Like you knew it was going to come to an end. How did you know? You know, uh, th there's there were a lot of factors there. Uh, you know, I 
<laughs> you know, deploying uh, uh, deploying to Baghdad and seeing how, at least at the time, how decision making happened. Uh, I, I didn't love the lack of uh, control that I had on 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 my own life, and uh, you know, we were we we would clear neighborhoods and then leave those neighborhoods and turn them over to somebody else, and then have to go clear those same neighborhoods a month later, and that that just kills morale. And that's difficult, and. Uh, you know, from what I saw, that that's just how the the army was operating at the time. And um, on top of that, you know, I was I was in a relationship that I wanted to uh, wanted to succeed, and I didn't want her to uh, I didn't want to ask her to follow me around all over the country and deal with multiple deployments, you know, for the next 20 years. So I made a decision, you know, probably not long after getting back from that trip, and said, you know, uh, I don't I don't I don't love. Uh, I don't love uh, uh, deploying to Iraq enough uh, to to keep doing this. And and when I look back, you know, I've got friends who've who've done five, six, seven, eight, nine deployments uh, over the last twenty years, and they, they've kept on going. And that that was something that you know, at the time uh, I, I was feeling pretty negative on the army after that first deployment. So. Um, I wasn't willing to keep doing that. Well, that's, I mean, listen, uh, th- there are a bunch of people who, who felt that way. There are a bunch of people who were sour on a couple of deployments for a lot of reasons. Um, and, and some of them you mentioned. Uh, some of it was, you know, I, I guess a, a loss of, of, you know, hope that things were ever going to get better there. I mean, I felt that when I was there. Uh, a lot of it, as you mentioned, was decision-making the higher-ups. A lot of it was uh, sometimes you just didn't like the reasons we were there to begin with. I knew plenty of people who who felt that. Um, you know, a lot of us put our head down, just do the mission, but we're still individual people who have thoughts and, and still individuals who have our own opinions and things of that nature. And yes, we can put those in our pockets while we go do a mission because that's what we're trained to do. But that doesn't mean we we, we feel 100% okay with everything that goes on, but as good soldiers, we do what's expected of us. So I, I think that's a normal feeling. Um, I'm just surprised that... Uh, you know, given the fact that you're an infantry ranger, a lot of those guys, that brotherhood um, keeps them there even longer. Yeah. You know, I, I, had, a, I had an interesting experience, Mark. Uh, I um, so my uh, so at the time I was married and, uh, you know, my wife uh, sometime in the winter of 2006. So I'm, I've been deployed for about six months. And we have a conversation, and, and you remember that time. It was a it was a turbulent time for the country, for the military. Uh, and she asked me how I would feel about her participating in a uh, in an anti war protest in D.C. So I'm I'm currently you know strapping up every day, going outside the wire. Uh, and she asked me how I feel about her going to an anti war protest. And you know uh, that was a that was an interesting conversation. I ultimately said I don't have a problem with it, but but had a couple. Uh, uh, had a couple conditions. Uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to ma- be made, uh, be made to feel bad when I got home about something I had done. I was trying to look for the good in, in what I was doing. Uh, I didn't want her to contact my chain of command. Uh, we had at the time some, uh, some spouses had, had done that. And that, that well, that's just a train wreck. And, uh, and, and I, and, you know, I didn't want her to be a, a leader in this movement. Sure. You know, it's one thing to go, uh, participate. It's another thing to, to take a leadership role in this thing. And, she uh, she ended up going, and uh, you know somebody somebody who led this protest saw her there, and she had a sign that attracted their attention, and uh, and they asked her to speak uh, at this thing, and and uh, you know she ended up on uh, on CNN and 
and uh, on the Washington Post, and you know, she said a couple sentences is all, but um, that caused a lot of a lot of heartache for me because uh, you know, of course, everybody my chain of command saw that in Baghdad, and you know, I got a little talking to from my boss, uh, the company commander, but then the following day. Uh, my battalion commander called me into his office, and so me and uh, and my boss, uh, we both go into the you know, Tomahawk Six's office, and you know he sits down. This guy was a, a real big Samoan guy, very intimidating. We were the Tomahawk battalion, so he's always waving the Tomahawk around everywhere, uh, and I'm 22, 23 years old. And, uh, you know, he continues to, uh, you know, uh, kind of browbeat me about my support for the war, my support for the president, uh, and essentially tells me uh, that, you know, uh, my, at the time, my wife's effort led to the deaths of his men because the protest was seeking to end funding for the war. Uh, ending funding for the war meant less uh, uh, protective uh, equipment for our troops. And that meant that his soldiers would die. And so therefore, my wife participating in this thing was directly leading to the deaths of his men. Uh, and then he proceeded to tell me uh, to get my wife under control and ensure that it never happened again. Wow. And and uh, and I, I tell you what, man, that that's the kind of thing that doesn't doesn't make you high on the army. Um, <laughs> and uh, and so, you know, I, I, I had quite a bad taste in my mouth uh, about that individual, particularly uh, but also, you know, if this is, uh, you know, whatever opinion you might've had about the war or about anti-war protests, you know, we're a country that supports free speech and, and we're trying to share those values, uh, in Iraq. Uh, I certainly felt that that was uh, an inappropriate, uh, uh, response to, to something that had happened there. I, I have a hard time disagreeing with you. Um, you know, as someone who still wears a uniform, uh, to me that that's not leadership, um, you know, I've never met the man you're talking about, and I have no idea who he is or what he's about. But the story you explained to me reflects poorly on who we are and the values that we stand for as an organization in the United States Army. And that's just not the way you roll. Uh, and furthermore, in a deployment setting, the worst thing you can do to a guy is rattle his family when he's thousands of miles away. Uh, and and to me, that is uh, a mistake in leadership. Uh, I'm kind of shocked and I dare I say appalled at what you had to go through. Um, your wife was doing something that American citizens do all the time. And it's 2017 now, and we just watched an NFL season go by where a guy protested the national anthem and it caused a national uproar. I mean, it's a, there's nothing <laughs> yep. more American than what they're doing. And I just, wow, that's a, I would, I would feel equally as disappointed in the military if that had happened to me. So I, I certainly have the empathy for you for you there, but yet you still decide to go back to a second deployment and you do it as a general's aide, which for the civilians listening is not exactly a glorious job. You're basically <laughs> a secretary. You you literally are a a Crockett get the boss a coffee kind of guy. Like literally that's that's what you're doing. Um yeah. so <laughs> why would you take that job to deploy of all things? <laughs> you know, uh the that kind of job is all about the personality that you're working for. Yeah. And, you know, it, it was interesting when he when he hired me, he said, hey, you're going to you're going to have uh, a 90 day uh, uh, probation period. And he said, if at the end of 90 days we're not getting along, then, you know, we're going to we're going to adjust the situation here. Uh, no harm, no foul. 
uh, just, I think for him as a recognition, and I, I think that was his, uh, his first aid, just a recognition that, um, <laughs> that you are so closely tied to that individual uh, in, in both directions, that if you can't stand each other, if it's a bad working relationship, it's just going to be tough. And, you know, when I interviewed with him, uh, and, th- and this guy is a great guy. Uh, his name is Pete Bayer. Um, he was the, uh, the first corps chief of staff, uh, ended up getting a second star before taking off out of the army. But he was just incredibly smart. Uh, I thought that I could learn a lot from the guy. And on top of that, you know, I spent 15 months looking up the chain of command thinking, what the hell is going on up there? I then had an opportunity to be in the room when large theater-wide decisions were being made and to, to understand, you know, how that would trickle down to somebody who's walking the streets. Uh, and I, I, was, I was eager to have that experience and learn from this guy. And, and I learned quite a bit. What was the most... Um eye-opening thing that you saw in those meetings that made you go, wow. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's a good question. Uh, you know, there's, there's so much that's interesting at that level. Uh, you know, we were working for a guy, uh, Chuck Jacoby, who um, he, he was incredibly intelligent. And, you know, the thing that impressed me most, uh, you know, there's, there's, there were always silly little kind of politicky kind of stuff in between the generals, which is just interesting to see. Um, but, you know, it's so incredible to watch these men and women who were just really, really competent. And you had also, you had majors and lieutenant colonels who, by the way, you know, at the time, I'm a fairly new captain. You had these majors and lieutenant colonels who were busting their ass day in and day out. Uh, you know, there's one, uh, one Marine major uh, who that guy was, you know, he and I would always be working late into the night and he was so smart and on the ball with everything. It was very, very cool for me to see how, you know, these, these mid-level, uh, officers and NCOs were supporting op, you know, operational level decisions, uh, and, and just some really incredibly smart people there. I was you, impressed. You know, it's interesting because, and, and this is also for the civilian population listening, we tend in, in the military to have a, a myopic viewpoint of what our situation is. Like, we get tunnel vision because it's all we mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. And when orders come down, whether they make sense or not, we grumble about them and say, this is stupid. Why are we doing this? But yet, again, <laughs> as I mentioned before, we just go out and do it without a real general understanding of why sometimes. And that is good and it's bad. But when you get to see that level of decision-making... There's a lot of times where somebody like you as a young captain can can still offer something positive in that room, but you're also sometimes taken aback by, this is how this decision is made? Really? This is how this one all went down? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's interesting, too. Like My boss uh, at the time, over the course of 12 months, signed $15 billion of uh, joint facility, what was it, JFAR, Joint Facility Acquisition Review Board, something like this. It was basically construction projects in Iraq. $15 billion he signed. Uh, that, that was fascinating just from a process point of view to see how these packets would get put together and then things would get funded. Uh, so, you know, that, that was interesting, but you're totally right. You know, it's like, you know, when you put on a uniform, you, you raise your hand and say, I'm going to do whatever I'm told to do. Uh, I, I was, I was fortunate to, to be working for a guy who, again, when, when, when he hired me, he said, you know, I, I want you because you just came from uh, a deployment as a platoon leader. And I want you to help me 
you know, not lose the perspective of the guys on the ground. And he, and he was honest and sincere in that. And he, you know, he, he would ask me, you know, Hey, what do you think about this? How's this, you know, how do you think this is going to roll out? And he would, you know, he, he cared about my opinion. And I, you know, I felt honored to, uh, to be at his side for that. Now, when you're at that level, generals attend a lot of uh, memorial services and things of that nature. Was it different for you to go to those things as a general's aide than it was as a platoon leader? Uh, you know, we went to one time stateside. We went to he, he was the uh, uh, the official military representative at a funeral, uh, and and of course we went to some services while deployed as well. Uh, you know, the, those are was it different? You know, it, it may have been different because I didn't personally know the the, the person, but um, you know that that was a time in my life where <laughs> you know if I if I'm the guy supporting the guy. Uh, you know, I, I need to not get teary eyed when I hear taps <laughs> and that's, uh, you know, that's, that's hard sometimes. Um, so there, you know, definitely had to, to balance, you know, maintaining my own professionalism and not, you know, when you, when you see, uh, when you see a, you know, a, a wife or a, a family member just, you know, losing themselves in grief, I mean, that's hard. And uh, to this day, it's hard. But even back then when, when I'm wearing a uniform, trying to be professional, that's, that's a hard moment for sure. You were getting out of the military. Did the general try to talk you into staying at all? You know, uh, <laughs> he, uh, he, you know, that when you get out of the military, you have to submit a packet and uh, uh, get it signed off by your boss. And, um, you know, he, uh, we, we had some discussions about this. Uh, and and I, I told him, even when I interviewed for, for, to, to serve as his aide, uh, I told him my plan was to, was to get out, and that's that's why I was interviewing for this job. I you know I wanted to at least do one more deployment, and so he knew from the get go you know what I was thinking, uh, and we had you know during most of the deployment it was kind of a joke, uh, you know all right let's let's see you know what we could say to Dan and keep him in and you know tell him how great this is, and uh, and he also was so great and just you know before and after we were deployed just opening up his family and his wife and his kids and uh, it was cool to see you know, them 25 years in uh, and how they had just gained so much from, from the military, but also the sacrifices that they had made. So, yeah, you know, they, they, they made, uh, they made some effort, uh, but, you know, it wasn't, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was mostly, mostly in jest, you know, we had good conversations and, uh, and, and he gave me the, the space to be hundred percent honest with them. So um, he, he knew where my head was at the whole time. In that honesty, did you share the story of what your battalion commander said to you about your wife? Oh, geez. Uh, you know, I don't think I told him that. No. Uh, and that's, you know, when you're not, I, I didn't want to, you know, my, my, my interest, you know, I, I didn't tell a lot of people about that story for a while. Um, and I, 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 I certainly didn't want to make a deal out of it in the army. Uh, so, uh, I did not tell him about that. No. Mm-mm. Okay. So your military career comes to an end and you become a Tillman scholar. You're the second Tillman scholar that we've had on the podcast, and you end up studying public policy at Harvard. How does that all come about? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know, I applied, I applied to schools while I was deployed uh, on that second deployment, and uh, we, the, the timing would have worked out for me to get home and have a couple months out process. And so I got accepted. I found out I got accepted after I was back home in, I think, April of, of 2010, and I was still weighing what I was going to be doing six months later. Uh, you know, I got in and that was, it was a tough call is, um, I was either going to go there or I was going to go, uh, to, uh, uh, the university of Virginia to study business. And, um, 
it, it was, uh, you know, I mean, for me, the, the only reason I got in there is because I, I went, I was in the military, uh, not because I'm special, but, uh, you know, I had, uh, there was a, there was a major in the command group that helped me with my application late at night, 11, 12 o'clock at night while I'm working long hours anyway for the general. And he helped me with my application and, and put in a lot of time and, and, um, and you know, that's the reason I got in. So, you know, I, I, uh, I thought, well, shit, this is a, this is a, a bigger opportunity than I never expected. So, uh, I better grab hold of it. And, you know, I, it was a, it was a really good way to transition out of the military because out of a class of, uh, 250 to 300, 10% of my classmates were, uh, veterans or still serving a lot, a lot of folks, uh, go to the Kennedy school at Harvard and then go on to teach at West Point. And so, you know, I immediately got plugged into uh, a veteran community that was an extension of what I already had. And, you know, the two guys that I, I got along best with were former striker platoon leaders, uh, both infantrymen. So it, it was a good way to transition. And it also gave me, you know, two years of runway to figure out what the hell I was doing in my life. What was it like being told you were selected as a Tillman Scholar? Oh, my gosh, that was fantastic. I remember uh, Hunter Riley was, was the guy who told me over the phone. He was uh, the program guy at, uh, at the foundation back then. And uh, it, it, was, it was fantastic. You know, the, the, you know I, I, applied, uh, I applied to the scholarship um, because a classmate and another Tillman scholar, Reagan Turner, you know, he, he mentioned the, the foundation to me. He said, hey, you should think about applying to this thing. And, you know, I, I applied, but, you know, when you apply for these kinds of things, you don't think that you're going to get, you're going to get picked. And, you know, you go through the interview process and in every stage, it's like, okay, you know, well, you know, I'll probably, you know, get turned down on the next one. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when they, when they, you know, when I got accepted, I, it was, you know, it's just an honor. You know, Pat Tillman himself was, you know, that's like the, the, the parion of selfless, selflessness, you know, this guy, you know, had had things that people dream that they could have in their life, and he turned it down uh, to go serve his country, and 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 for all the right reasons, uh, and to be, you know, somewhat connected to, uh, you know, his his legacy and and the work that his wife Marie has done to build this thing up. Uh, that, that's just that's just an honor, and and to this day, I mean, you know, the reason I'm here talking to you is because I, I you know, I try very hard to stay engaged with that foundation because I keep doing just wonderful things and and pushing all the scholars and others to continue to serve in some way you were a fellow on the truman national security project how does that come about yeah i uh i went to a career fair at uh at harvard and met a guy named tyson belanger uh who is a former marine uh and uh he was uh, at the time a doctoral student studying uh studying uh studying war and he was part of the Truman Project. Uh, the Truman Project, for those uh, for those who don't know, it's you know it's a 501c3 and a 501c4, uh, focused on uh, progressive values and national security. So you know at the time the thing that was uh, a big topic was you know maybe the United States should should use less oil and we'll be a little more safe, or you know we shouldn't torture people because it actually you know makes us less secure. Uh, those are the kinds of things they were pushing at the time. And those are things that I believed in. And so, you know, again, uh, kind of right place, right time. Tyson Blander convinced me to, to apply for this thing. And, um, you know, I got invited to, to be a part of the group. You know, you wrote a op-ed piece, I guess what it's called in the, uh, in the Boston Globe. Um, and it's very, very pointed and very, very, uh, 
opinionated. Let's just call it that. Um, yeah. Share me, share with me the reasons for writing it and what you felt and how therapeutic was that for you? This is the, uh, this is the 10 years later yes. article. Yes. Yeah. The, you know, for me, um, you know, t- 10 years after, uh, after, uh, we had started war in Iraq, you know, it's kind of a, kind of a milestone for our country. And, you know, in 2013, we were, we were still, uh, still there. And, you know, for me, uh, I, I was, you know, maybe just feeling uh, a little reflective and, and tried to write down my thoughts, but, you know, there's, there's, uh, you know, you say it's uh, rather opinionated, the, the, you know, uh, history is going to have a, have a say in, you know, should we have gone to Iraq or not? And, you know, when I was there, uh, I didn't care because, um, it didn't matter. I had, I had a platoon to look after, uh, and I had a job to do. And so I, I, I didn't, I didn't think a ton about, should we be here? And in fact, when people asked me, I said, you know, it doesn't really matter. I know what I'm going to do. And on top of that, you know, at the time, uh, Saddam Hussein was, was uh, at the time where people were asking me this, Saddam Hussein was still out there. And, you know, my answer to them was, you know, he, he's not, he's not doing good on his people. So you know, I'm all right with this. Uh, in hindsight, you know, my, my opinion has grown to say that, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that we did enough uh, before March of 2003 to prevent war. And uh, as a country, and, and even when we, you know, when we, when we kicked off Operation Iraqi Freedom, the country is very divided on whether or not we ought to do it. And, you know, you have the whole weapons of mass destruction thing, which is a whole separate, a whole separate thing. But for me, the lesson that I took out of this was that, you know, we got to we got to stay engaged. Uh, you know, for me, it's, I have to stay engaged because, you know, I don't I don't know what the next Iraq is uh, that, you know, uh, uh, our commander in chief or an administration or somebody might say is worth losing lives for. And on top of that, you know, and 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 you, you probably saw this reflected in my my thoughts about, you know, anti-war protests. You know, a lot of the people who in, in late 2002, early 2003, a lot of the people who said, hey, maybe we shouldn't be going to Iraq. Uh, the, the, the tactic there was to cast them as being unpatriotic. You're not, you don't love this country enough. You don't care about this country enough. You're unpatriotic because you're suggesting that, you know, maybe we shouldn't be taking on this effort. My answer is quite the opposite. You know, if you're, if you're engaged in this country, uh, you should be, you know, putting everybody to the test before, uh, we commit somebody's life. You know, I I know, uh, you know, at least a dozen people who lost their lives in Iraq, uh, you know, if you zoom out and say, was it worth it to lose almost 4,500 lives? Uh, and, and that's just Americans, not to mention Iraqis. Um, and, and this, this is, again, regardless of politics, uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that, that it was. Uh, I'm not sure that we did everything we could to avoid conflict before we, we crossed the berm. So, uh, you know, that's something that's, something that's definitely going to stick with me. And I, I, I hope we're never in, in a situation where that matters. But that's something that, that that's going to stick with me. It's, you know, uh, protesting is not unpatriotic and, uh, and we all, you know, we all have, uh, an obligation to stay engaged in this kind of stuff, know what's going on and have an opinion. Well, Dan, you've certainly done the military proud. You've done yourself proud. I mean, look at all you've accomplished. And, you know, I'm always pleased and always happy to see vets who are making a difference after their military career is over. Uh, because there are so many vets out there who have so much to offer and it's so much to give and are not getting the opportunities that they need, want, or deserve. And the fact that you have made the most of it as a Tillman scholar and, you know, Harvard and everything else is just, it's, it's unreal. I'm just proud to, that you've done everything that you've done. And, 
you know, that we wore the same uniform and, you know, proud to know you, brother. Uh, I, I appreciate that, Mark. You know, some of the, some of the stuff that I, I try to stay involved in now, uh, you know, almost, you know, when I, when I left the military and I, I don't know if you, you know, you're still serving, uh, so I, I don't suspect that you, you share this, this thought, but, uh, you know, maybe for a deployment or two, but, uh, when I left the military, I didn't feel like I had done a lot. Uh, you know, I, I deployed twice, 27 months in, in Iraq, and I didn't feel like I had done a lot. And it, it certainly didn't match with uh, my expectations going in. I thought, you know, I'm going to be on the right side of the fight. I'm going to be doing good things. And, and while I can point to good things that we did, you know, on the street in Baghdad, you know, helping people with, with whatever they needed, um, I didn't feel overall that I had done good. And so, uh, you know, this, the stuff that I try to stay involved in now is because I, I still feel like I'm uh, I'm kind of making up for that. I, I, I want to be able to look back and say I, I did something worthwhile. So still working on it. Well, listen, brother, you're, you're off to a great start, man. And we certainly appreciate your time and you coming on the podcast and being part of what we have going here. And we wish you nothing but the best of luck in the future. Thanks, Mark. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.